being preached even before the preaching even starts. That's awesome right there. That's the gospel message in a nutshell right there. I should be in hell to pay for my sins, and yet there was one who came to pay for my sins for me, and his name was Jesus Christ. And a simple belief in Jesus Christ is all it takes to be saved, to accept that free gift from Jesus Christ. What a message, and a powerful message that is. Wonderful. Well, if you turn to 1 Timothy one more time, please, then we're continuing a four-week series, basically just getting through the first chapter. And if you'd please stand out of respect for the Word of God. Don't always have to do that, but on Wednesday night we studied in the book of Nehemiah, where that's what they did out of a respect for the Word, and the people stood. And they stood for six hours. I'm not going to make you stand that long. But 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll read the first Several verses here. I've used this as a way to try to train myself in my own thinking. This is, this is like a book that's written by a pastor to a pastor, and you might think it's only for pastors, and yet it's, a, it's written to a young man even before he was pastoring, and there was, a, there was concepts here that God says is for every, um, every Christian out there. And so as we study it, we're trying to learn from Scripture what God has to say uh, for us still today. And um, so we'll read the first 11 verses and stop there. Paul, verse number one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God and uh, by the commandment of God our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son, my true son, my genuine son, this carbon copy in the faith, grace, mercy. And peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went to Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions, rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. Now, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good, if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous man, but the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, he's just going through the Ten Commandments now, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, speaking of homosexuality there, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, And, in case I missed anything, if there be any other doctrine that's contrary to sound doctrine, that's what the law is good for. Verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, Paul says. Let's get into this today. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you, dear God, that it's not just a book to be venerated, but a book to be lived and loved and studied and Um, internalized, and God, it's a book of eternal life. It is a message of truth and hope 
that we have still today. I pray that if there are some who are searching for that hope, who have tried everything else and don't know where else to turn, I believe that this message is for them and for Christians who are, are searching for that hope and searching for that, that peace and yet searching in other ways other than in your son. I pray that they'll be reminded of the best things this week as well. We pray your help in this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I've been, the follow, I've been following the politics this week, just like you have, and it's, you know, whose military is stronger? We'll take anybody on type of thing. My guns are bigger than your guns. And all these men fighting over whose army is stronger, who has the secret weapon. I can think of one weapon that's more powerful than anything else. And I experienced this weapon this week, an experience that a secret weapon that can turn a full-grown, I feel like a full-grown man now, strong man, I re- I remembered my belt this week. I mean, I'm I'm fully developed, strong human being. Can turn that man into mush, turn him into a weakling, melt him like butter, turn a hardened battle warrior into a softie. And that secret weapon is a little blonde three-year-old girl with braids. You know, that just melts a dad's heart right there. I have a three-year-old, a five-year-old. And a seven-year-old, my um, uh, brother Kyle, was helping me on my truck on Thursday night. We had it all torn apart. My hands are all greasy, changing some wheel parts. And it's bedtime. We're working through their bedtime. And in walks Gwen, my little three-year-old Gwen. She has her hair in braids and walks out and gives me a big old hug across my shoulders. And I think that, that just makes my heart beat faster. I love it. I love my daughters. And it's like, that's what... That's the secret weapon. The, the love that a dad has for his kids is something that you can't explain until you're a father, until you're a parent, and you understand that that is probably like a secret weapon. The power of a father's love for his kids has the power to ignite a fight, to ignite a war. If you mess with my kids, then I will mess with you. They have superpowers for sure. And I walk by the girls' rooms sometimes, and I hear them playing dollies, you know, and, and somebody, saw this, somebody saw this bowl with these, with these toys in here. I said, oh, pastor must not be preaching because there's toys in the pulpit. Is that Brother Ryan preaching? I said, yeah, that's about right, you know. So I grabbed some of my dollies and had them, and I walked by their room sometimes, and it's like this is the most precious age where imagination is the most wonderful thing, and you can hear them imagining being mommy and daddy and, and uh, playing together with their toys and imagining just this wonderful little peaceful scene of who they are. And obviously our family has its own crazy problems, just like anybody else, and we have arguments and screaming fights and all that. But I, I, I look at the... The ages of my daughters, three years old, five years old, I think that's such a precious time. And I love the singles ministry. I loved the youth ministry, working with teenagers, and I love uh, children's ministry. But there's something so precious and fragile about those early years of those little daughters. There's something, there's something so sweet that you want to cherish and protect. There's a certain amount of innocency that as you walk by the room and listening to them playing on their own, you think that is so... It's just so pure, and it's just so sweet, and, and it's just so carefree. I mean, the, the worst things that are happening in their lives are that sister stole my Barbie doll, you know? That's the worst thing that happens in their lives at that moment of playing with those toys. 
And there's something so innocent and, and if we could say so naive about their lives that they don't even realize how precious their lives are or how precious this season of life is for them. And it's a treasure. And that is valuable. And that's worth caring for and protecting. And, and so what we do is, is we look at this phase of childhood, these few years that we have with them, and we want to be very, very careful about who's teaching them. And so sometimes we, we take these bubbles of their lives and we cover them over and this, the toys illustrate the season of life that they're going through. And as parents, we want to protect them and shield them from the things that might hurt them or who might cause their minds to drift from us. And we want to make sure that they're always protected. If it's a technology thing or if it's a physical protection, then we'll get the greatest protection to save their lives. Or if it's training, we'll put them into things that will help them and better them and shelter them and further them and maintain this purity, this wonderful little season of life called childhood. And this is something that's precious, and it's, and it's as good as it gets. There's no cares. The imagination runs wild. There's Disneyland right there in their own rooms. The result is that that's what I want. And if there's a chink in that armor, if there is a way that somebody comes and tries to hurt your little darlings, then boy, watch out. That's when Mama Bear comes to bear. And that's, you know, you watch the nature documentaries and it's almost like it's built into the instincts of animals that mama bears will protect their young cubs and mama moose will protect their young and mama cheetah and mama lion. You know, some of the, some of the shows break down if you watch too many of them where we were watching one where the birds built their nest a thousand feet up on the rocks and then they just kind of flew away and expected the birds to jump themselves down and some of them splatted on the rocks, you know. So the illustration breaks down a little bit. But for the most part, it's built into nature to cherish and to protect and to carry them along and to help them develop into something that they can grow and thrive and flourish. And there's protection that's built in. And as much as we want to do that with our kids, as much as it's built even into nature, into the instincts of animals, as much as we want to do that for our children, when we read the scripture and when we read what, what is most important in life, you know what God even deems higher than that is the protection of our lives spiritually. And, and that God wants us to thrive spiritually is, is why he puts things into our, our, our lives. And that's what this book of the Bible is all about. I want you to thrive spiritually. I want you to be protected from outside evils that will cause you to trip and to fall and to be hurt. And so, son Timothy, I want you to go help that church. I want you to protect them and cherish them and guide them and help them thrive and grow. Here's my son Timothy, my own son in the faith, the strongest Christian I know. He's a carbon copy of me. We studied that last week where I'm sending Timothy to Ephesus and he's my stand-in. He's the one that is just like me in all these things. And in Ephesus, Timothy, you're going to have a hard time. We covered this last week in verse number three. Look at verse number three. I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went to Macedonia. I have to leave you here alone, son. I have to go on to Macedonia, but here's your job, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. There's some who are going to be teaching, and there's wolves that will rise up among you, Acts 20 says. He anticipated it in this church. And yet there's some in here, in this church, that are, are, are trying to harm what God has set up here. 
And here's how they're doing it, verse number four. Neither give heed to fables. They're replacing more stock in Aesop's fables than in the word of God. They knew what the word said, but they were doing, look at this, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies. They loved First Chronicles 1 through 9, he begat him, and he begat him, and he begat a son, and he begat a son. And they were finding doctrines within the family lineage of some of these people. And, and just this, this is crazy, Paul says, verse number 4, which minister questions. All these things are dredging up questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. It just causes confusion. And their law, their ideas of what is right is causing harm, and so guard against that. Watch out against that. I'm not scared of the verses that get confusing. I'm not, I'm not going to walk away from them. I'm okay with Bible questions, and you should be too, but that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about this chinks in the armor and the protection that are causing confusion and doubt of God himself. It's a different gospel. And we said in verse number 6, from which, having, from which some having swerved, the word swerved there we dealt with last week by, by saying it's not that they're taking careful aim and shooting at something and hitting it or maybe just barely getting off course. It's that they're just shooting from the hip and they're just, they're just hoping for happily ever after without ever really going down the path of righteousness. They're just hoping for that goal but aiming at nothing and hitting nothing. That's what swerved means, where Paul is saying that kind of teaching, that kind of false teaching is a false gospel, verse number six, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. Vain jangling is just this empty, worthless babble. Everything they're saying is not building up people. It's not helping people. It's not, it's not advancing the gospel. It's doing nothing of value for anybody. It's just emptiness. It's just foolishness. It's vain jangling, and that's, what's, that's what their gospel is about. Desiring, verse number seven, desiring to be teachers of the law, we want the, we want the status of the rabbis. In their pride, they were lifting themselves up. We want to be the teachers, to be teachers of the law. Look at this, verse number seven. Understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. They don't even know what they're talking about. They're ignorant even about the things that they're talking about. And not only are they ignorant, they affirm it. They're, they're, they're very dogmatic about it. And everything they're saying, they're saying a lot of things, but they're not really saying anything. Everything they're saying is words, but they're just empty, jangling words. They're not helping anybody. So we're starting to see that their teaching is fables and genealogies, and it's questioning what's there, and it's empty, and it's just ringing with pride. They want to be teachers. They're misunderstanding the truth. They're ignorant of the truth. They're, they know not what they're uh, affirming. And Paul says, that's, that's wrong. That's what I have in mind when, uh, uh, when they are talking about the law. They're not talking about the right kind of law. So he says, there is a law that's good. The law is good, the Mosaic law that carries over even into this New Testament era, even though it's Old Testament, Paul says it still has value for us today. It's, it's, not, that, it's, it's not the same value it always had. It's not what makes us righteous in some way. The law is not there to make us Christians. The law is just there to show that, man, I am unrighteous. I mean, that's what he says, right? Verse number eight. 
The law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless. That's on the inside. I don't care about the law. Well, how does that show up? Well, it shows up in being disobedient. The lawless, the disregard for law, means that on the outside, I'll disobey the law. I don't care what it has to say, so I'll do whatever I want. And the law is there to show us that's breaking of the law. Well, it's also there for the ungodly. I have no regard of God in my life. And what that leads to is for sinners, the ungodly and for sinners, that if I don't regard God in my life, then yes, I will sin. There is a lie I've broken. I've crossed the line. I've missed the mark. And sin is just the, 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 the not even acknowledging that God does have a moral law, that you can make your own law, that I'm just an evolved form of, uh, of chemical mixture. And so why do I care about some kind of God out there? Why do I care about a law? And so they're ungodly, which leads to their sinning on the outward. And then the, what else it says in verse 9? For unholy, meaning they don't care about holy things, they, don't, they have no regard of God, the law, or spiritual things in general, holiness in general. If they're unholy, then that means they'll be profane on the outside. The unholy and profane. Profanity is just an outward expression of the inward belief that I don't care about God. Profanity is just saying, oh my God, in a term that you do not mean the almighty creator God, and that you take his name and drag, him through, drag his name through the mud because you don't see that name as having any kind of value. You're ungodly, so that leads to you being profane in the outward expression of your inward ungodly heart. That is ungodliness and profanity, which is just lowering the holiness of God to something small that you care very little about. I mean, if it's on the in, inward of your heart, then obviously it's how you talk. The heart issues, the lawless, the ungodly, the unholy come out in those life issues of disobedience and sinning and profanity and lifestyle and lined up against the law. When I see them exposed by the Ten Commandments, I, things are starting to look bad. I really am evil. According to Scripture, I mean, according to me, I'm doing okay. But the Bible just calls you unholy and ungodly and profane. And, that's, and then he goes into the Ten Commandments, murdering father and mother. In the New Testament, it even goes to hatefulness. Manslayers, that's the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Whoremongers, thou shalt not commit adultery is the seventh commandment. And, and, and uh, defile themselves with mankind. That's two words there that's kind of lumped into one. Man and marriage bed. And, and, and so it even hits on homosexuality as connected to breaking the seventh commandment. And men stealers, the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. Like the ultimate expression of it is kidnapping and slave trade. And, and this is all right here that he says, this is, this is what the lawlessness brings you. And what the law exposes is that you're hurting people and that you're breaking a higher law than you. And you're liars. And the law exposes us for lying. And perjured persons, thou shalt not lie. And then he says, if anything else contradicts sound doctrine, that's all lumped into breaking God's law. Sound doctrine just means healthy doctrine. Health, it's a medical term, the word sound there. Oh, you're in sound health. You're, 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 uh, you're sound. You're, um, you're doing okay. And what the law does is it exposes the cancer that's on the inside, shows us we are not so healthy as we seem. 
And when we're exposed against an eternal law written by an eternal God and revealed to us through, through the men and through the law that we're lining ourselves up, it's like a scalpel that cuts into our chest and flays it open and you see there's a giant tumor that I can't handle by myself. The scalpel is not the thing that's good. The good news is the thing that's good. The good news is the gospel in that Jesus is the great physician there's no amount of working at, at, at being better at the Ten Commandments in order, to, in order to gain God's forgiveness. The beauty of the gospel is verse number 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. This good news is what's good about the law. The law itself is not good. The law itself is not good news. The gospel is good news that the law says I have a tumor. The law says I have cancer. The law says I'm spiritually sick. And there's those who will tout that as a better way, as a better gospel, as a better form of living. And yet, and yet God says, no, that's not right. The gospel is the good news. The gospel is the one that introduces you to the great physician. The gospel is the, the good news that Jesus Christ died and rose again and he conquered that tumor. He conquered that cancer. He conquered the cancer of sin that's on the inside of all of us that the law exposes is in all of us. And yet Jesus says, I've offered you forgiveness. Salvation is just you accepting that free gift by repenting of your sins. So when you line up the two, it's like their law leads to fables and genealogies and questions and vain jangling and emptiness and they're dogmatic about stuff. They don't even know what they're talking about. It's characterized by sin. It's, it's defiling. It's sickening. It's the opposite of health. That's their law. That's where their law draws you. And yet we're talking about sound doctrine here, Timothy. Son Timothy, my own son in the faith, you need to teach and affirm and constantly reteach sound doctrine. You need to preach the glorious gospel of the blessed God. You need to have some good news that in verse number 19, you need to hold faith. The law is good. It is a glorious gospel. The, verse number 11 calls it that glorious gospel, meaning that it's a gospel that exposes or glorifies God. It exposes God to the people. If you've seen somebody who has, who has been transformed from a life of sin into a life of a Christian, you look at them and think, you used to be so profane, you used to be so ungodly, you used to be this and now you're this, that gives glory to God because it's not merely turning over a new leaf, it's, it's a supernatural process of change that God does at salvation. And that's what glorifies God because it's not about what I have done it's about the glorious gospel. It's about exposing God for who he is and all his attributes. That's a precious, precious thing. And then, when we start living as Christians, verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The blessed God. It's not that we bless God in this case. It's that he is the source of blessing. He's the one that is full of blessings. He is the fountain out of which all blessings flow. And living in the gospel then as Christians, to live a life that is gospel-centered and focused and that, you're, that your life is, is, is constantly in view of what you used to be, like the Apostle Paul says in future verses, to what I am now, that's what true Christianity is about. Christianity is not about trying to force my way into not being these bad things I used to be anymore. 
It's about just reveling in the blessed, glorious gospel of the blessed God, the God who is the source of blessings, the God who is the fountain of blessings that pours blessings like the choir sang about today. We're really talking about the biggest purpose of, of, of what we're talking about is, man, if there's a better Christianity, if you have found a better form of Christianity than what the Bible has to say, then I'm all ears, man. I'm, I want to, I wanna, if you figured this thing out, then I want to figure this thing out too. And yet the Bible says the end, verse number five, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart. And... Of a good conscience and of faith, unfeigned. If you say, "Well, I don't need God in order to live a, a, a happy life," then you say, "Then you say, well, it, it's not about following some list of rules that we're talking about in Scripture. That's not real Christianity. As if it's some kind of burden, as if it's some kind of hard thing to bear. That's never what the apostles have said. It's never what Scripture has taught. It's exactly what verse number five says. You know, true Christianity." is that you come to the realization that what I used to be, God's changed me from that. And as I develop it, as I grow and walk in this, in this gospel-centered life, then that kind of faith, the end of the commandment, verse number five, the end of living that and following God in that way is a pure love. A pure love. It's an innocent, sweet uh, uh, Focused on God love, not focused on man, not focused on performing for other people, but that I'm, I'm, everything else is walled out and it's like I'm so in love with God. It's a pure love that's undefiled by anything else. True Christianity is not a list of rules, not following the Ten Commandments, it's accepting the glorious gospel of Christ. And what that leads to is this life of, you know what, God, I don't know why you'd forgive me, but thank you for forgiving me. I love you because you first loved me. I'm in love with my Savior, God, our Savior, and our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for that love. And it's real. It's a real love. It's a pure love. And with that kind of a heart of love, the Bible says, charity out of a pure heart. And look at the rest of verse number five. And of a good conscience. I don't try to obey the law because I have to, and I'll go to hell if I don't obey the law. It's that, boy, I love God so much. And when I sin, it's, it's part of my sin nature. It's something I have to battle with. It's a struggle that I have every single day. But that God gives me a way to purify myself through confession, and then I can come boldly to the throne of grace, of constant forgiveness, that God still loves me despite me, and that I can come to him and, and, and be right with him. I can just keep a short list before him, that I know that there's sin that still plagues this body, and I know there's still struggles that we as Christians have, but the fact that I can come to the presence of God and be clean and, 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 and confess my sins before God, you know what that does, this this nagging part of my body called the conscience that helps me be aware of my sin and this guilt before an almighty God, that can be clean. God, I love you so much, and I know I've sinned, and I, God, would you please help me to live by the Spirit? Thank you, God, for being with me. He says, I forgive you again and again. It's like I have a clean conscience before God. 
I don't have to worry if he's going to strike me down around the next corner, worry about the car coming down. I don't have to worry about those things. My conscience is clear. I'm not stressed out about my spiritual life. That's true Christianity. When you love God out of a pure heart, leads to this, this clean conscience. And then, verse number five, and of faith unfeigned. Faith unfeigned. If I have a clean conscience before God, I don't have to go around acting like I have faith. It's just a part of what comes out of me. And I'm not saying for me myself, I'm saying you, as you have a clear conscience before God and you love God with all your heart, yes, there are sins that will trip us up and there's besetting sins and the scripture talks about that. But living a life yielded to the Spirit of God moment by moment every single day where you're keeping a short list before God and a clean conscience before God, it's like that kind of life is what Christianity is all about, a faith that's not faked. Feigned is faked, like a, a bird will feign his wing to be broken and he'll stumble around on the ground to get a predator away from the nest. He's faking it. He's feigning this, this pain in his wing until the predator gets away from the nest and he flies off. He's faking it. This faith that we have as we live with a pure conscience before others and a clean heart before God, I don't have to fake anything. I'm just living for God. I'm making decisions that are trying to be pleasing to my Father, my friend, my Savior, my God. And when God does that for you and you live that kind of life, then that's when true joy starts to come out of your life. When there's not a fake, stressed-out life, i got to put on the church show for my church friends, go home and live something different. There's an overwhelming awareness of verse number two, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace. That's how we can say in the middle of, I know you have a hard struggle ahead of you, Timothy, but you know what? Grace to you. And I, I, and I know that you have a pure heart before God and a clean conscience, and I know that you will get through this. So, so in the middle of all that crazy life you're going to be living over the next few weeks of, of years of cleaning up the mess there in Ephesus, I want you to know that God's grace is with you. And I want you to know that even in the middle of that, as your eyes are on loving God and as your conscience is clean before Him, then I want you to know that even in the middle of all the turmoil, there can still be peace with God. So grace and peace and mercy to you. You're going to need God's mercy in these times of fights and battles that are coming. And some might look at Christianity as if it's nitpicky and angry and they're always fighting about this and that and they're always angry about this. Listen, there's going to be wars. There's no doubt about that. There's, he says in future verses, war, good warfare. Timothy and, and, and Paul are fighting false teachers here. There are wars, but the wars are not what defined their Christianity. The wars are just a way to defend their Christianity. The wars and the fights are not, are not who they were, fighting, angry, fundamentalists. It wasn't defined by their Christianity. It was what they used to defend their Christianity, to guard that moment of peace and grace, to guard that joy, to guard what's on the inside that they know is on the inside. If we're looking back at this illustration here, this is like what we can describe as my childhood, my child's childhood, and I'm going to protect it, I'm going to guard that. It's so precious to me, it's vulnerable and it's sweet. And so as a parent, my job is to put that bubble over them, to protect them and guard them because I cherish what's on the inside. I cherish those years with my kids. I cherish what they're going through. And it's like this wonderful little 
utopia of life. The worst thing that happens to them is sister stole my toy. And if that's as bad as it gets, that's okay with me. That's a wonderful, wonderful image of what can be. And I think this childhood is so, is so carefree. And yet what God does through the eyes of faith is to call us through the scripture to view our lives like this. And that there's a utopia that's here in the presence of God. There is true grace that's possible in the presence of God. There is true peace that's possible in the presence of God. I know there's turmoil that life brings your way, but in God's eyes and through the eyes of faith, we are in Christ and impervious to those darts of the devil that he throws at us. He's the one to protect us. Sin is the one that exposes us to the hurts of the world. Our own choices, our own sins are the things that, that, that rip the grace and rip the peace and rip the joy away. Those are all of our choices. What God is saying is, look, I'm calling you back to believe that this utopia of a Christian life, of following God, of having peace is possible. And faith is the act of saying, I believe it without even seeing how it's going to work out. I don't know how my family can work this out. I don't know, but I believe that God is big enough that even in the turmoil of life, that, the, that God is big enough to bring this utopia on earth. I'm using the word utopia to say peace and prosperity and, and, and the wonderful blessings of God because he's the blessed God. I believe that the glorious gospel has changed my life and living by the gospel is what God is constantly calling us back to and get your eyes off of the world and onto Jesus Christ because your circumstances are not what decide your utopia. Your circumstances are not what decide your joy and your peace and your grace. God gives us through these things. Uh, an unfeigned love, a charity out of a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a faith unfeigned, and grace, and mercy, and peace. What God is doing through that is giving us this tiny sliver of heaven on earth. And he says, a relationship with me is like a tiny sliver of heaven. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, many of other, Paul's other writings, it's like he's writing to them as if they're already in the presence of God. As if they're already in heaven, as if these, they're already there, but not quite yet there. And yet what God allows us to live with are these moments of peace and, and, and grace. Brother Jim Corver came by my office on Friday, gave me several books, magazines and books, and it was awesome. He works with uh, a ministry that, that goes around and, and collects martyr stories and gave me a book of the founder there and his wife, and I read some of the things, and it's just amazing to think that, that these men and women who go through so much torture and so much pain, and, and I believe it was the founder's wife that lost her parents and I think her three siblings to uh, persecution. They just murdered them and locked her in a cell and and locked him in a cell for years and years and years in solitary confinement for several years so that it's like the tortures of the mind. And yet this, this precious woman said, I refused to let them see me uh, frown. I refused to let them own me because ev every circumstance I'm going through right now, no matter how many they have killed in my family, that's not what determines my joy. And he has a daily devotional that goes through these testimonies of, of family members who were martyred for the faith. I think that's powerful. 
And showed me from a book that, that, that Timothy, most likely, according to history, went on and was stoned to death for his faith. And you look at these martyrs and you think, this is, this is, how is this possible that they could, they could have their families ripped away from them? How is it possible that they could serve God and yet never recant their faith? How is it possible that, that they would go through so many tortures? You know why? It's because they see life through the eyes of faith that say, this is God's ideal. This is God's best. And nothing you do can get inside my life. Nothing you do can, uh, can cause a chink in that armor. There is a fight that's trying to rip that protection off. There are those who are in the church and out of the church that are trying to cause chinks in that armor, but through eyes of faith, God is saying, look, it's not about circumstances, but it's back to the belief that there is a place of rest. There is a place in the presence of God, and His way is this place of grace and peace and joy. And look at verse number one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Jesus Christ is the hope. What I've been calling this utopia, this wonderful little thing that we as parents understand a smidgen of because we're trying to protect it and guard it and shield our kids away from hurt. God says, in a much grander way than that, that is your life, and that's the beauty of your life that I want for you. And even martyrdom can't hurt that if you allow it, because Jesus Christ is your hope. Your hope is not freedom from the tribulations that God brings your way. Jesus Christ is your hope. As Christians, we're called to an ever-deepening love for God, an ever-focused uh, uh, life on Jesus Christ that's free from the distractions that God, I mean, that the enemies of Christ are trying to pull our eyes away from. Christianity is so simple. And there's issues in the church, and I realize people have problems with other people and problems with their past and problems with all kinds of things that will happen. But listen, true Christianity is pretty much summed up there in verse number five. The end of the commandment is charity. Have a pure heart and a clean conscience and faith unfeigned. Stand if you would, and we'll pray this morning as a way to respond to God who's trying to, trying to get through to all of us. We're going to sing 235, Near to the Heart of God, a wonderful place of perfect rest that we'll sing about in this song is available to every single one of us. You say, I'm going to try to force my way into that. I think I've just got to turn over a new leaf. I've got to I've got to get a little more grit in my gut. I've got a little, I just got to fight a little harder. I've just got to go to some more. Of the, no, your own efforts are not going to be able to cut it. It's only by getting into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. There's a place of quiet rest near the heart of God. A place where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God. Oh, Jesus, blessed Redeemer. Sent from the heart of God, hold us who wait before thee, near to the heart of God. There's a place of comfort, sweet. A place where we are Savior meet. There's a place of full release, a place where all is joy and peace. That's what's offered through the glorious gospel of the blessed God. If you've never met that God, and you've always thought God is the God of the law, the God of the Ten Commandments, I've got to follow these rules, you have the wrong view of God, and I invite you to meet the blessed God, the right God, who wants to forgive you, who loves you, who cares for you.
We're going to pray. This altar is open as an invitation time. We're inviting you to come and ask Bible questions. We want to give Bible answers to any questions. We want to pray, allow you the opportunity to pray and talk to God in this moment. So I'm going to pray. Brother Grissom's going to sing near to the heart of God, and that's when the altar's open. Our Father, thank you for the time and the word together. Thank you for being the blessed God, the blessings-giving God, the glorious gospel that you've allowed us to live in and be blessed by. Dear God, I pray if there's somebody in here who is ungodly and unholy and profane and disobedient, that the law has exposed at least the need and that they come seeking the answer to those questions that were dredged up in their soul today. I pray, dear God, for them and for Christians this morning as well. Bless in Christ's name. Amen. Brother Grissom,